Uh, today we'll be in John chapter uh, 18 again, as we're working our way through what we're calling this series, The Suffering Servant. Uh, last week we considered together the Jewish trial, and today we'll look together at a longer passage, but it's a single unit of thought that represents Jesus' Roman trial and then the verdict that he was given. My hope for you today is that God would use his word to persuade you, to convince you, and to encourage you that Jesus is the true king, as we've been singing about this morning. And Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the lamb. And his self-sacrifice is the only thing that truly delivers us. This morning we have two brothers coming to read who are new members. So guys, why don't you go ahead and come for us. And they're going to read for us John 18, 28 through 19, verse 16. You can just grab a mic. And uh, thank you for your willingness to read. Hello? Hello? Maybe? Yes? Cool. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring before this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabbatha, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Thank you, brothers. <clears throat> that, you know when you're using your whatever podcast app of your choice, you can speed it up, 1.5? That was a surreal experience. Because we got 1.5 over here, and Lee, you were slowing it down for us. Now, brother, I only know one language, so you're reading in your second, so or third. How many languages do you know? Four. Well, you can slow it down all you want, because you're a lot better off than the rest of us. Thank you both for, for reading. Very thankful for uh, the ministries being done on the campus and how the Lord continues to bring folks like you guys. Thank you. These uh, verses, there's a lot of detail here, many, many things we could talk about. We're trying to go through John in such a way that we're taking each unit of thought and pressing in on the main idea. And there's certainly a lot more things to be discussed, so I hope you're reading through John with someone and spending time together on it. These verses uh, we just read utilize an intricate structure. It's easy to miss the first time you read it. Uh, maybe, Lee, if you would come read again slowly for us, we could get it. But it, it moves together through this pattern. It goes outside, inside, outside, and then there's this moment where Pilate tries to pacify the Jews. And then it repeats the same thing again. Outside, inside, outside. Now, what is going on? Well, in the verses we looked together at last week, there was a similar kind of structure, except it was organized around people. This text organizes the pattern around a place. It does so in order to explain how the verdict against Jesus was reached. So maybe an example would help. Look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside. So Pilate moved from inside his house to outside where he would visit with the Jews. And he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
So this is the formal trial of Jesus before the Roman authorities. Pilate says, what, do you, what have you brought him here for, in essence? And they answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So one of the things that can be extremely helpful when you read the Bible is just to ask, what tone is this presenting itself in? So what tone do you think they said that in? They're pretty snarky, aren't they? They, they say, well, would we have brought him to you if he wasn't doing evil? They don't actually answer his question. They don't give a charge. These Jewish leaders were not looking for justice. They were looking for a rubber stamp. They were looking for something just to happen quickly and move Jesus on through the process. So Pilate, in turn, also has a snarky response. Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So this is an example of the outside. Pilate talking with these Jewish leaders in order to try and ascertain why have they brought Jesus forward. But then the scene shifts inside. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, with ever bit as much sarcasm, says, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? You hear what he's doing? Love this. Jesus is saying, can you think and speak for yourself, or are these people you're supposed to be ruling over manipulating you into doing something to me? It's incredible. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? This introductory section, this first outside and then inside, just sets the tone for the entire passage. Everyone is tense. The Jews, the Jewish leaders have come expecting Pilate to put Jesus forward quickly for his execution. Pilate is defensive. Jesus is here to carefully call out sin where it is present. Now that's the structure the whole passage hinges on. Outside, inside, outside, outside, inside, outside. All of this is incredibly precise. And it's designed by John to show us the tremendous drama that led up to the execution of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. There's one plot. Jesus is going to be sentenced to death. But that one plot, that one drama, is dealt out, if you will, on two stages. The inside stage, where Jesus and Pilate interact. And the outside stage, where Pilate and Jesus interact with the Jewish authorities. Whether it's Pilate or the Jewish leaders trying to outdo one another in political maneuvering and manipulation, or Pilate inside with Jesus as Pilate tries to demonstrate his authority, but Jesus shows him really he has none. The point is graphically clear. 
even up to and through the Roman trial that led to Jesus' execution. Even when the whole world is against him, the sinless one will offer himself for the deliverance of people who weren't asking for one. Of people who claimed their own rights over Jesus's. So our passage today in really graphic form will reveal to us three things about Jesus that are forever important to know. The first one is that Jesus is the better king. We've sung together about that this morning. It was so wonderful to hear as we lifted our voices to the Lord together. Second, we see that Jesus is the real truth. And finally, we see that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb whose self-sacrifice truly delivers. Now, this is a long scene, so rather than move sort of verse by verse or even paragraph by paragraph through rehearsing or recounting for you each event, each conversation, I want instead this morning to try and synthesize the meaning that John lays out for us of Jesus' trial and verdict. We'll consider and show how this reveals the character of Jesus. Rather than using our time mainly to study precisely what happened in its intricate detail, I want instead to try and help us understand the the significance of each conversation as a whole. And trust that you could spend more time in gospel communities uh, looking at all the details. So let's consider this first truth about Jesus so plainly laid out in this text, that Jesus is the better king. In verse 33, Pilate questioned Jesus, and the very first thing he asked him was, are you the king of the Jews? Apparently, he understood implicitly that that's what the uh, Jewish leaders were claiming Jesus had said. They were putting forth the accusation, this man is claiming to be the king of the Jews. This is just political maneuvering, very much like what we see today. Now, we don't have a king, and we're not part of the Roman Empire. So the significance of this question put before Jesus is very, very easy to miss. Some of us in the room are still in school. The rest of us, uh, that's somewhere long in the past. So the history might need a bit refreshing for you. At this point in time, the Roman Empire ruled most of the known world. And what they would do is they'd move in, conquer an area, and then place one of their own as a sort of puppet king over this area, this geographical location, letting them keep many of their own laws, but only Rome held final authority. So Pilate is here positioned as a puppet king under Rome, and he's trying to make sense of why the Jews were so upset. Why did they want this particular Jew killed? He was looking to render a verdict, and that's apparently the crime that Jesus was accused of. So when he said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, what he was really asking are questions like this, are are you trying to take Israel for yourself? 
Do you have the audacity as one of the Jews that you should somehow be king, not me? And not ultimately Caesar back in Rome. Do you have a a plan, a plan that would certainly fail, but do you have a plan to overthrow me? Are you claiming to be the new Caesar? Now what do all of those questions have in common? Well, they're all about a physical kingdom. They're all saying, do you plan, king of the Jews, to take this place for yourself? Now look at Jesus' response, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom, which notice he doesn't refute that he's a king. He, he ups the ante, if you will. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of the world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're thrilled that you're here. Thank you for spending time this morning with us as a church family, sort of peering in, as it were, upon what Christians do as you seek to consider the Scriptures for yourself. Jesus here is responding to Pilate with something like this, my rule and reign as king, my power and authority as the only ultimate sovereign, my essential focus is not on countries. It's not on political borders. That's far too small and inconsequential of a kingdom. Rome is nothing compared to me. My kingdom is not from here. Its origin doesn't begin here. And it's not of here. Its substance isn't the physical world. You won't find me behaving like Pilate or like the Jewish leaders. It's not of this world. My kingdom is a kingdom in which my power is used for the good of others. It's not a kingdom where power is used to control and to manipulate and to beat down. My kingdom is not about political boundaries. It's not about physical currencies. Because my kingdom will last forever. Jesus is saying my kingdom first and foremost is not a physical kingdom. My kingdom first and foremost is a spiritual kingdom. A non-Christian and Christian alike, this is so important for us to understand what Christianity actually is. These words are of no less significance in our own ears than they were in Pilate's some 2,000 years ago. You see, Christianity is not a quick pathway to financial gain. Christianity is not a magical prayer that will cure any physical illness. God is not a genie who you just rub his belly and you get whatever you want. Christianity is not, in the end, about temporal, momentary happiness. 
it's first and foremost about God rescuing you, not from physical poverty or physical sickness or physical self-esteem. Friends, Jesus came not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow sin and death and the devil. If you're looking to Jesus to be a quick fix for problems in this world, then you will find King Jesus to be so disappointing. But if you understand him to be freeing you from bondage to sin, giving you physical life, then you'll find Jesus to be endlessly, unendingly wonderful. The kingdom of God will eventually present himself and itself here on earth completely, fully, finally, decisively, forever. All that will happen when Jesus returns. But for now, this kingdom this kingdom of God is experienced spiritually. Just like Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, my kingdom is not of this world. And you, to enter this kingdom, you've got to be reborn spiritually. He's essentially saying to Pilate the same thing yet again. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. My rule and reign happen as People come to me, trust me, turn from their sin, turn to God, then they are reborn spiritually. They're becoming part of the kingdom of God, not through political conquest, but through Jesus' conquest over evil on the cross. Brothers and sisters, isn't this such wonderful news today? King Jesus is ruling this morning over his church. And the citizens of his kingdom are members of local churches. This is why in the church it's so important to make a a membership commitment. To, as it were, get your passport, your passport of heaven, certified and stamped in a local congregation where we as members help one another remain citizens in good standing of this kingdom of heaven where we represent the rule in the reign of God on earth today. Where this kingdom is not marked by manipulation, but by continual movements of love. Where we give ourselves not to our own ends, but to help and encourage one another to grow up in Christ. If you look closely throughout this passage, you'll find this kingdom and king language throughout the Roman trial. But notice how Jesus uses his kingship. Notice how he talks. Notice what his concerns are. There's no late night twittering from Jesus to put down someone else who doesn't have the position or the authority. There's no bantering and firing people who stand up against him. Instead, there's peace. 
Instead, there's giving of himself. Instead, there's not holding power for himself and using everyone around him that he might get his own ends. Instead, there's Jesus stretching out his arms, opening himself, using his power to give up his own life that people might be welcomed into his kingdom. Do you see how different the kingdom of God is from the kingdom of the world? And friends, that's what the church is left in the world to be and to do. A people who don't use power for our own ends. But a people about justice, mercy, hope, righteousness. Now, Pilate saw that Jesus had done nothing wrong. As he, he looked into this king of the Jews, he found no guilt in him. And so, multiple times in this text, he moves from outside talking to the Jewish authorities who are insisting on his death, who are just nothing more than an angry mob. And then moving back inside with Jesus, finding again and again and again, this was not a man worthy of death. But the crowd kept persisting. And so as often happens, when there is an angry mob that rises up that's big enough to have the possibility of manipulating and overthrowing the person in power, Pilate gave in. He sought to pacify the Jews by giving Jesus over for something less than death in hopes that that would be enough to satisfy their thirst for violence. I find these verses so hard to read. But look at the start of verse 9, chapter 19. So Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up, that means came up pretending to bow down. They came up saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then instead of giving him homage, struck him with their hands. Jesus, the King over all, allowed Himself to have His clothing removed, His arms tied to a post. The Roman soldier took a whip pieces of bone, rock, metal. And, and simply to display 
their power and cruelty struck him again and again and again. And as they tugged on that whip, peeled the skin and soft tissue off his back, And then they gave him the most horrid coronation a king has ever had. As they took that crown of thorns and mashed it into his head. Blood pouring down his face. And then mockingly pretended to bow in order to beat him. the king over everything allowed himself to be treated like the scum of the earth. Now, at one level, this just shows the Romans' contempt for the Jews. It shows their well-documented outside of the Scriptures Brutal power just uses to sport. But on another level, there's more happening here. This shocking scene is a graphic picture showing us what happens every time we act as though we are kings and queens of our own universe. This ripping of the flesh and mashing of the crown shows what's happening to God as we sin. Do you understand that? Every time we gossip about a brother or sister in Christ, it's as though we kneel only to smack Jesus in the face. Every time we covet someone else's job or curves or athletic abilities or personality or spouse, all of that discontentment welling up within us is just taking another crown of thorns and mashing it a little further down on Jesus' head. Every time we refuse to share the gospel with a family member, because we want to avoid conflict. Then we're just holding ourselves up, saying, Hail, Chuck, King of the universe. Brothers and sisters, there's a Roman soldier in every one of us. The manner in which Jesus met his trial and then later his execution is not graphic without intent. It's what historically happened. But the Father let the Son be brutalized in this way in order to give us a sense of just how awful and heinous our sin really is. Sin is a rejection of God's good rule. 
It's a removal of King Jesus proverbially from the throne in order to place ourselves back there. And so as our stomachs churn thinking about this passage, may we not arrogantly think, thank goodness Rome's not in charge. But Christians, may we think, God, keep me from the arrogance of claiming my own kingdom. Now, Jesus isn't just the better king. He's also the real truth. Look at verse 37. Then Pilate said, so, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, meaning born on earth. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Sometimes we think that the postmodern relativistic thoughts of our day, that there is no truth, they're somehow new. But Pilate would have fit in just fine as a professor at ASU. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. Jesus speaks for truth because He is the truth. Friends, this is one of the things that makes the Gospel such good news. When we give up on the idea of truth, we give up on reality. We give up on hope. We give up on any certainty in life about anything. Now, it's sexy to say, you have your truth and I have my truth, but if you're stopped at a stoplight and the stoplight changes from red to green and you go, and someone going the other way also goes, and they crash into your car, do you get out and say, no big deal, red means green, red means go to you, and green means go to me. There is no truth. It makes no difference. Friends, it's really stupid. In almost every sphere of life, we don't live that way. But somehow when we come to spiritual truth claims, we somehow think it's not knowable. But Jesus is the ultimate revelation of truth. He's not a mere idea. He's God Himself in the flesh. And friends, we could take Jesus' death on the cross as the supreme revelation of the love and the truthfulness and the wrath of God. And we can take Jesus for years proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom with his mouth. And these are parallel ideas running in the same direction, so closely aligned that they're one and the same. 
To speak the truth for Jesus is to live his life and to die his death. For Jesus is the truth. Friends, in a vacuum of truth, which is the world we now live in, in a vacuum of truth, anxiety rules and peace disappears. Because intrinsically, there's something in us as human beings in which God is revealing Himself in creation all the time, indiscriminately. And our consciences bear witness that there is a right and wrong. And so every time we say, you have your truth and I have mine, we're denying inside something experientially we know to be true. And that throws us into an inner turmoil in which we spiral not downward into rest and calm and satisfaction and joy, but into an ever-ending pit of despair. All the while, Jesus stands as the truth. And in Him, there is joy peace and life, irrespective of what's happening in our circumstances. When there is no truth, we become slaves to anything and everything, but Jesus is the truth. And Jesus says, if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Oh, what good news this is. Far from limiting or constraining life, Jesus, as the truth, invites us into that which is truly life. So friend, if, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, the gospel does come with commands to obey. But, but first, the gospel is a message that sets free. And then it frees us to obey. But not a king of tyranny and of oppression. But a kingdom that is so wonderful. A kingdom of forgiveness. A kingdom of peace. A kingdom of joy. This is the kingdom of God. And so if you turn from your own self-rule acknowledging Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, invite Him to be your King by faith, then you too will be part of this kingdom Forever. Jesus is the truth. Friend, you can trust Jesus. And finally, this passage also shows us that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb whose sacrifice truly delivers. Jesus' trial before Pilate, verse 14 of chapter 19, shows us happened on the very day everyone would have been prepping for Passover. Annually, every God-fearing Jew would travel from wherever they lived, and they would make that trek geographically up to Jerusalem. The city would swell hundreds of times past its normal size. 
And every family, as they came into Jerusalem, came with their, their satchel, if you will. But they also came with a lamb. And so at the very time these lambs were being brought into Jerusalem, about to be killed in order to prepare for the Passover, at that very moment, Jesus is being put on trial in order that He would be lifted up and placed on the altar and killed as the ultimate Passover lamb. It's the most remarkable scene. Friends, these Jews would go to Jerusalem every year to remember something that had already happened. God had intervened in the most miraculous way, rescuing their ancestors out of captivity in Egypt and delivering them in a tremendous way into freedom as the people of God. And God did so through the final plague. You can read about this in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, if you're unfamiliar with it. Take an hour, maybe 45 minutes, just to read through it this afternoon. All the Jews commanded by God in this final plague killed a lamb. It was to be a pure, spotless, perfect lamb. And they... I know this is weird, but they took some of its blood and smeared it on their door. And then they huddled down inside in prayer. And on that night, the angel of death came and every home where that smearing had not taken place, where a substitute lamb had not died, then every firstborn male was killed. And that was the final straw in which the Pharaoh, in essence the the king at the time of the world, and he said, you can go, you're finally free. So the Jews were set free. So for literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews had remembered that event Remembering how God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. But that physical slavery in Egypt had always been pointing forward to a far more serious slavery. It's the slavery of sin that you and I have all experienced. Have you had the experience recently of telling what you thought was just a little white lie? Only to find that you had to Tell a little bit bigger one to cover over that one, and then a little bit bigger that. And then before you know it, you don't even recognize who you are. That's the slavery of sin. Sin is a horrible master, it promises you everything, but in the end, delivers you nothing other than bondage. That slavery of the Jews in Egypt was designed to communicate to them, you have a far worse master than Pharaoh 
Your master is the devil. And you've been conquered in your own sin. And that physical deliverance out of Egypt under Moses' leadership was always designed to point forward to a far better leader and a far greater deliverance. But the Jews in Jesus' day were blinded. They were in a rush to crucify Jesus. Unknowingly sacrificing the true, greater Lamb. Jesus was right in front of them. Even as these thousands of sheep were being walked in, true and better lamb was right there. They couldn't see it. They missed it. Friends, Jesus died as the ultimate substitute. He died not so lambs wouldn't have to be offered anymore. He ultimately died so that you would not have to die, Christian, a spiritual death leading to a physical death, leading to an endless torment in hell. Jesus died that you could be freed. Now, so what? What ultimately do these three things about Jesus teach us? Well, very quickly... the heinousness of Pilate and the Jewish leaders show us that sin promises fun and freedom but only results in bondage and blindness. You really don't need me to tell you that because you already know it. Maybe not intellectually, but you've experienced it. Pilate and the Jewish leaders thought they were outmaneuvering and outwitting each other using their power for their own ends. But none of them have any power anyway. Just consider a couple of ironies here in the text. The Jewish leaders wouldn't go into Pilate's place. So there was all this outside, inside, outside, inside because the Jewish leaders wouldn't go into Pilate's house. They had made up this rule that they as clean, holy, spiritual men couldn't go into a dirty Gentile's home or they'd be unclean and unable to observe Passover. So their legalistic adherence to things that God had not in fact said caused them to miss the fulfillment of the law that God had said. Jesus. The irony is incredible. These Jewish leaders thought they were free, but they missed the one who would deliver them. A second irony. Pilate saw himself as the final full authority. And yet, he was constrained by and manipulated by the Jewish leaders who he despised. Revealing he had no true authority at all. He just cowered in fear. Irony number three, and the most powerful, who got set free instead of Jesus? Barabbas. 
Barabbas was a thief and very likely an insurrectionist, one who was actually trying to overthrow Rome. And yet Jesus, who wasn't trying to overthrow Rome, was held, was killed. Do you know what the name Barabbas means? It means son of Abba. And so the son of Abba was set free while the son of God was killed. All of this and so many more that we don't have time for, all of these ironies show us that sin promises us freedom but only delivers bondage. Friend, make no mistake. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world and there's the kingdom of God. You can only reside as a kingdom, as a citizen of one kingdom. All of us are born into the kingdom of the world. None of us deserve the kingdom of God. But by grace through faith, non-Christian friend here today, you can be rescued out of bondage. If you understand this message, won't you repent and turn from sin now? And if you don't, won't you please ask whoever you came with or somebody sitting next to you or one of your pastors here at Church on Mill to tell you more? And if you are already part of this kingdom of God, won't you treasure afresh and anew today what you've been given in Christ? For He is the true King. He is the truth. He is the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. Let's pray. Jesus, Father, we recognize today what a serious text this is. We ask you to speak to us. We ask that we would be a church that doesn't look like the world. Convict us now where it is needed. Encourage us now where it is needed. I pray we'd never think of your trial lightly. In Jesus' name, amen.